My fear is that in when the temperature changes in this country, is that that chronicling um, will be a lot of, Ooh, I'm so glad that's over. Um, there will be a kind of feeling of resolution in the absence of Trump that doesn't necessarily say that there's resolution to these problems. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like grandma and grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary, and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a five-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners, and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show, and remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. I decided to make race the subject of the first episode of this podcast for a reason. Donald Trump's presidency has surfaced for many observers of America, and indeed many white Americans, the racism which has always been so central to American history, but so often has been minimized and ignored. Trump's nakedly racial rhetoric and policies have given race a prominent place in the international conversation that we all have about the United States, one that it really should have held all along. But there's also a sense that this moment might be slipping away. Many white Americans, especially those on the left, have been galvanized by their opposition to Trump's racism, and they've started conversations about the way that racial inequality is baked into America's institutions. And they've also begun to reconsider racism, not solely as the outcome of an intentional act, but also as the outcome of policies and institutions which appear apparently non-racial. But it's really an open question whether this reconsideration is going to outlast the emergency posed by Trump. If he leaves office in a few months, will race once again slip into the background for the majority of Americans and those of us abroad who talk about America? My guest, Marsha Chatwin, is the perfect person with whom to discuss these issues. Professor Chatwin is a prominent scholar of race and ethnicity in America. As well as writing two books on African-American history, she tirelessly travels the US speaking about race, gender, and ethnicity. After the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, the, the shooting that really led the Black Lives Matter movement to take off, Professor Chatlin mobilized other scholars to create the Ferguson syllabus, which saw her named a top influencer by the Chronicle of Higher Education. We had a great conversation, and I really hope that you find it interesting and enlightening. Hi, Marsha. Welcome to the show. Hi. One of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast is to help people around the world and particularly in Europe to understand the United States. And as someone who travels between these two worlds quite a bit, one of the things that I, I really notice is that it's very difficult for people outside of America to understand the centrality of race to American politics and society. And I think that's often because they're in denial about racism in their own societies. 
but it's also because there's something qualitatively different about America's history of race and particularly the history of slavery. So my first question is to ask that if you wanted to make someone who was completely ignorant of the United States understand the centrality of racism and race to America, how could you begin to do that? I think that if I were to explain the centrality of race in the United States, that the best um, metaphor is that of a house, that a house can be large and have many rooms and can have different decorations and different themes, but it sits on the kind of one foundation. You can't have multiple foundations for one house. And I think in many ways, race is the foundational um, lens and to which um, the strength of a house um, and its character is shaped. And as it is, um, as it kind of scaffolds so much, it is always kind of um, the weight of it, the weight of everything, you know, that we experience in the U.S., is is so much undergirded by race that I can't think of a single process, a single policy, a single kind of mode of engaging um, the public sphere or the private sphere that isn't informed by race in America. Right. Yeah. And this this means that so many issues that might appear non-racial um, if if you are not well informed about American history or American society always have a racial dimension. Absolutely. And I think that's the um, I think that's the struggle in the U.S. You know, that lens, that understanding of of how race is so present and so prevalent is where a lot of our struggles come from, because I think that there is a lot of not only denial, but there's a lot of self-interest and a lot of um, incentive to ignore that reality or to minimize it or even worse, to manipulate it. Um, to uh, prevent from any real change from happening. Over the last few years, there's been this, um, well, a growing awareness of systemic injustice and of the implication of all actors in society in racism. And this seems to have led to a change in the language that Americans use to talk about racism to some extent at least. So if we go back a few decades, then to be racist used to mean something like what we would now call bigoted or prejudiced, like an intentional act by an individual. And now it's much more common in discourse around these issues to talk about something as racist because of the outcome that it has independent of the intentions or self-images of the particular actors involved. So, you know, using this language, the electoral college can be described not just as an institution which gives gives disproportionate representation to white voters, but actually as an inherently racist or, or white supremacist institution. And this language has been common in, in parts of academia for some times, but it seems to be spreading much more widely in, in public discourse now. And I wonder if you could reflect on on maybe why that is, and then also the ways that it, it leads, leaves people sometimes struggling with what it means to be or not to be racist? Um, you know, I think that this is an interesting one because um, I think that there's still a reticence to understand um, one's relationship to power. And so what happens is, you know, someone believes that because they are not biased or bigoted or discriminatory in their actions, they live in a context where there is, you know, some relative racial and ethnic diversity, They think that they have clean hands in the business of white supremacy, but then you ask them a few probing questions about segregation, about the choice in schools for their children, 
um, you know, kind of their social lives, um, their reliance on the police to, um, you know, keep undesirables out of their neighborhood. And then you think, okay, um, actually, my everyday acts are an extension of the white supremacist state. Like, what do I do about it? And so I think what people get really jammed up on is this idea that I can't possibly have um, as much power as you are suggesting. And I think the analysis saying, actually, the amount of power you have is staggering. The question is, what are you going to do to undo it? And so um, while I do think that um, we've become a little bit more sophisticated in being able to analyze the racist origins or the racially disparate impact that something may have um, within the context of communities, the kind of personal reckoning with power I think um, people are still struggling with and the reticence to kind of engage that is what we still have with people saying, well, you know, I just didn't know or tell me what I should do. There's a lot of, I think, disingenuous, um, you know, kind of surprise by just how bad things still are in America. I guess all of this is to say that anytime the discursive space can shift and anytime there can be a, a, a clear idea of what you can do um, in order to undo um, racism, I think the better, but I, I, I just, I still think that there is a lot of um, wanting to discharge blame. Right, yeah, and this this really reminds me of um, in Robin DiAngelo's book White Fragility. She talks about the um, the sentences, the sort of the explanations that she hears again and again in diversity training from from white people who are saying things like, "Well, I marched in the '60s. I can't possibly be racist, you know, or I have African American friends, you know." And and it also seems though that the the kind of these myths draw sustenance from the fact that. American society is still quite racially segregated. So, um, you know, friendships um, across racial boundaries are still quite rare. And, you know, many, um, many white people don't have those relationships. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing that I find so obnoxious is when people are very um, kind of reticent to concede that these things are happening and they also um, frame the hypersegregated ways in which they live as just a matter of choice or preference or coincidence. And so then, um, then the task at hand becomes too large and intolerable. Well, so what do you want me to do, sell my house? Well, what if you did sell your house? Or what do you want me to do, have my kids not go to the school? Well, what if your kids didn't go to the school? Or what if you didn't amass so much wealth and just enough wealth to take care of yourself? You know, like, I think that the asks are so small at this point. Um, this is why the radical changes can't happen, because people are struggling to, you know, recognize that segregation still exists. And what we need is kind of an upending of capitalism and, a, a, you know, and an upending of private property and all of the forces that are um, galvanized to protect it. Like, we need so many big things um, that it's it's heartening to think of the ways that people um, bristle under the suggestion of some of the smaller ones. Right. And that, that uh, brings us very neatly to our next topic, which is that, so you recently wrote a book and um, a very great book called franchise about the relationship between McDonald's and black America. But that book in a larger sense was also about the relationship between race and capitalism in America. And one of its themes was how the private sector has had to emerge as the provider of services in black communities, which have been left abandoned by the state. 
and the well the the problems this brings up for people's lives but then also kind of the moral problems that that it's come to this and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about about what you found in that book so prior to 1968 mcdonald's did not franchise its locations to any african americans and franchising is a system in which a licensee is given the right to operate a business and so in doing that um Post-1968, McDonald's presented themselves as providing, you know, a kind of a new opportunity uh, for African-American entrepreneurships. It created a framework where um, African-American franchised McDonald's restaurants had to started to have very significant influence in their community. And um, it created a, a place in which um, the kind of dreams and hopes of uh, using private business as a place for um, African-American economic power could happen. And so, you know, in many ways, the fast food restaurant, um, I argue, you know, replaces the state in the lives of people because it is omnipresent. It's a source of pride. It creates first jobs. It creates the public space. And I talk about in the, that in the context of people being very exhausted by 1968, having sustained so many losses in the civil rights movement, having experienced these incredible legislative victories like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but not seeing a real improvement in the quality of black life. And so when business starts to present itself as the final frontier or the next pivot for black people to organize for themselves and to create economic independence, if not full, you know, civil rights. It's an exciting proposition and people believe in it. And I want to talk about this um, in order for people to understand that this is how private business starts to, re to replace the state in um, vulnerable communities. I'm okay if we have hamburger restaurants and I'm okay if we have private business, but I don't like the fact that the quality of life is tethered to employment and success of said business. So if Amazon has a good year or Bill Gates has a good year, then his charities have a better year and charitable donations can go up. But we actually have mechanisms to uh, meet our needs and those are called taxes. And if everyone paid a fair share into it, we wouldn't um, be mired in the anxieties of survival that we have in the United States. So. I, I think that, um, you know, the context needs to be the places in which people's voices and everyone's experiences can be considered as valuable. And that is a public one. And once we start engaging business in in things that they're not designed to do or aren't fully committed to, then I think we get in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and that point about taxes is a very pertinent one on the day we're recording, Isn't which it? is yeah, when uh, Donald Trump's tax returns have just, just been released and showed that he paid basically zero, except he occasionally threw in a few hundred dollars when he felt like it. So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about Donald Trump. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Inevitably, in any conversation about America nowadays, we, we come round to Donald Trump. 
Um, and I'd like to um, start by running an observation by you to see what you think. So um, Philomena Essed, the Dutch Suriname scholar, has written um, recently about a concept that she calls entitlement racism. And she says this is a tendency which is increasingly visible in Europe in which public figures deploy racism as a political strategy and then when they get called out on it, they make a kind of free speech defense of their actions. Basically, that they have a right to be offensive and the problem lies with people who object to that. And although I think we see this in the US to some extent, and we particularly see it from individuals, it seems to have less centrality as a tool of racial politics in the United States to me. Um, if I like look at someone like Steve King, and the Iowa congressman who basically tried to run a version of this strategy, you know, he, he said um, earlier this year or last year, you know, what's wrong with defending white supremacy? And then he manages to basically get kicked out of the National Republican Party for that, which is some, you know, some, uh, you know, you have to do a lot to be kicked out of the Republican Party for, for racism. And the Trump phenomena, by contrast, seems to couple like coded or often barely coded racism with incredibly angry denials that racism could actually possibly be the motivation for his words and actions. And I wondered if you think it's a fair observation that we don't see so much entitlement racism in, in the US and could reflect on why this might be. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think we have a version of it, um, but I, I think it's I think for people who deploy it, they understand they're taking some kind of risk because they never know kind of what the resistance to them will look like. I think the version that we have in the U.S. is that um, people kind of on the ideological left um, get held accountable for something and they make themselves victims and then they become darlings of the right. So I think we have more, um, let me see what I would call it. It's more like um, grievance racism so your, your racism is all about grievances, about your lack of power, but you're able to kind of platform yourself because of a grievance based on accountability or responsibility for your racism. And so there's always these people, um, David Horowitz, who used to be kind of a, a radical member of the left and then became the kind of poster child for you know, conservative provocateur racist behavior called campuses. Um, it's this thing where I used to be on that other side. And the second you make a mistake, you know, people will say really ridiculous things like, you know, liberals just cannibalize each other and cancel culture. It's all from this kind of source where there can be zero accountability or any possibility of reframing or reflecting on one's own behavior. What's been um, really... Well, I was going to say interesting, I guess horrifying might be a better word, but about um, about the way that Donald Trump has practiced racial politics in the last few years has been that he's really made much more explicit the racism that's been common practice in the GOP for, for some decades. And, you know, we, we always see this common line on Twitter when people say that Trump's saying the quiet part out loud or, you know, as we as academics might say, he makes the subtext into the text. And the, the practice for a long time has, has been really in the GOP to merge racism with issues that are apparently non-racial if you're not aware of, of the foundations of that house that you spoke about at the beginning of this interview. And sometimes it feels like Trump has kind of surfaced an iceberg and a lot of people are left looking at what used to be below the waterline for the first time. And I wondered if you think that this has played a role in, in shifting public opinion and aware, awareness of racism over the last few years. 
you know what it's done for for people who are kind of like they enjoy racism this has just been you know fantastic for them they feel unleashed and you know they feel kind of unmuzzled and they're excited i think for people who had imagined themselves as not racist it has put them in the crosshairs of um the, the the thing that has that has frustrated me the most about Donald Trump's kind of emergence isn't so much the people who support him because they are not of any like kind of surprise or shock to me. It's the people who are engaged in a kind of um, kind of like emotional existential um, gymnastics of how they feel about people who like Donald Trump and people in proximity to their lives. So it's these people who are, you know, this, this thing that was had about a three year run of humanizing the Trump supporter or, you know, not disavowing someone because they support Trump and this deep coddling of people who have ushered in just pure chaos into the country. Um, and I don't think you should, I don't think, you know, I'm not a punitive person. I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't think people should be exiled. But the fact that there was no kind of framework for accountability for people's support of Donald Trump, but a deep pivot towards compassion and understanding on the part of a kind of left-leaning white elite I thought was really fascinating because what it told me was that as much as they wanted to maybe um, project an image of uh, congruence in their lives, like, you know, people, you know, me and my friends don't say these things about, you know, black people or about Mexican people. We find it all disgusting, but they were one, like, they were one degree of separation from someone who supported Trump. And so they got really defensive about it so that the strategy becomes to understand the motivation to validate economic anxieties that existed long before Trump and may will exist after him to kind of validate the positionality of a Trump supporter instead of saying, well, I'm proximate to this force in this country. That's really bad. Perhaps I could, find a way of talking about accountability and impact so that I would find myself in, you know, places where liberals gather and just being, you know, like eviscerated for suggesting that there is something bad about supporting Trump, <laughs> which I think is like a perfectly fine position. You can disagree with the position. I don't care what the disagreement, but the kind of the, the, the kind of insistence that not all Trump supporters are racist. It's like, that's not even the most important part of the agenda. It's just this very weird, I think, difference in the ways that white people versus mostly black people, I think largely people of color, kind of view what being a racist is, as if that's, I don't think being a racist is the worst thing in the world because most people I know are racist. Um, but but this kind of, um, I, I don't even know what it is, like a romance of understanding that was like guiding so much of the conversation and was validated by so many um, corners of of media and higher education. It was just really weird to me. I I don't know if I have a point, but I just it, it's 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 cloying and it's tiresome, <laughs> and and it distracts us from actually doing real structural work. Sure. Yeah. No. And I I think that was that was a really good point. And yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me to also be a defensive posture designed to um protect people from confronting their own implication in whiteness i think yes yes and i think initially after the election people were very kind of set on i'm one of the good ones 
And then it was like, well, don't come after the ones that I love who voted for Trump. And then it was a like, um, the ones who voted for Trump, you just have to understand them. And then it was like, oh, it's really bad that they voted for Trump. I'm in an existential crisis. But it's so incredibly narcissistic and self-ego driven. Instead of saying like, here we are sitting in this reality of, of this of this moment. Like, what do we do? Like, wh- like, what do we do? Who can be, we be with this? Right? Like, that is never the kind of you know, stance. And I think this is why, you know, texts like white fragility and how to be an anti-racist are very popular because while they platform this, I don't know if, um, I don't know what they're asking of people to recognize this when they recognize this, this trait. So we're going to take another quick break. And then when we come back, we'll keep on talking about these issues. And and also we're going to talk about the black lives matter movement. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. On on this subject of um, so of kind of the white liberal posture towards these issues, and do you think that? after Trump has gone and that iceberg kind of gets submerged again, at least in the sort of circles and media outlets that, that white liberals move in and consume, that there's a risk that, you know, what passion has been activated for the anti-racist struggle might again be submerged. Yeah, absolutely. I think here's what I think is, is what we're operating with. We have this dreadful, dreadful moment in U.S. history. Like, this is not good. We all know this. And we also, for the first time, this isn't the first time the U.S. as the entity we know it today, um, or human civilization as we understand it, has been through something like this. So we're not um, out of history in that way. But what we are in a moment is one in which people can chronicle who they were in an important moment every single day by virtue of having a telephone. And so in earlier periods as a historian, as someone who, you know, uh, studies freedom struggles, if I get a letter in an archive from someone from 1918 and they talk about the influenza, or if I find someone who's being honest about their feelings about Martin Luther King, you know, in 1965, I'm like, yes, this is such a, you know, what a rare masterpiece. But today, everyone with an opinion, I can know it and I can know it day by day. And so I think we feel compelled to be someone or be something in a moment of critical importance. The problem is, is that who we're trying to be isn't necessarily upending the current order. And I'm not saying there are people who are doing this every day on the street. I don't want to demean people's activism. But what I do want to say is that because we have such a clear, we have so many clear pathways to chronicle who we are in this moment, people will do it. Um, my fear is that in when the temperature changes in this country, is that that chronicling um, will be a lot of, I'm so glad that's over. Um, there will be a kind of feeling of resolution in the absence of Trump that doesn't necessarily say that there's resolution to these problems, as you noticed. And I think that then there will be a kind of rewriting of history where people start to suggest that they were more important in this moment than they actually were. And this is the same impulse that 
everyone you meet who lived through the 1960s wants to frame themselves as a, you know, freedom fighter for civil rights, but such a small portion of the population actually did anything for civil rights. So I think there will be a lot of immediate revisionist history coupled with um, a lot of um, feelings of relief coupled with um, a lot of referring to this period of time as one that required accountability, but then will stop. So the, um, there's been a, you know, this, this, this national conversation about police violence, and it's often framed as an issue primarily affecting young black men. And of course, it's not the case that this is exclusively true at all. You know, uh, we look at Breonna Taylor and Atatian Jefferson, um, who were killed in, in their home and not in the streets, so in, in kind of private rather than public spaces. But, the, you know, the, this this issue is often primarily f- framed as been about um, black men in public spaces. And, you know, Black Lives Matter was founded by by three African-American women. And there's been this attempt with the, the Say Her Name movement to, to raise awareness about black victims of, uh, sorry, female black victims of police violence. But I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the sense in which police shootings are also a feminist issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that they actually present... Um, a space to understand some really complicated um, both history and current politics. So when we think about um, victims of police violence, we often associate it with um, with shootings, um, usually that yield death, and then there are exceptions. But I think that we have to broaden the umbrella to understand police violence as sexual harassment and sexual assault. And this is when we start to see a more gendered lens on the question. And I think that when um, people are killed in private spaces like the home, or when women are killed, girls are killed because they are collateral collateral damage in the pursuit of men they are in proximity to, um, it's harder to do the kind of cycle of memorialization that um, I think a lot of people have become dependent on to make the case um, against the police and their excessive violence because um, it's not caught on camera, right? There's no body camera. Um, there's no um, civilian taking pictures or bystander. So I think that there's something about the reliance on the visual. I think it's not understanding the private spaces in which women are terrorized and also not understanding sexual violence as part of that is is one part of it. And it, it often seems that, so you, you mentioned the, um, the cycle of memorialization, and it seems that that really relies on these court cases, right? So, so much, I mean, the, the, um, the, the judgment was just, well, sorry, uh, earlier this week, so it was a grand jury that, that refused to indict um, the killers of Breonna Taylor. And it seems like there's, there's, there's a great buildup of tension that leads to a moment of either catharsis or disaster that hangs on the outcome of, of these legal proceedings. And that, of course, um, relies on there being legal proceedings to begin with. And in many cases, in the you know, with sexual violence, that's something that that wouldn't happen because so many cases of sexual violence are never prosecuted. Right, and but I think there's also another context for thinking about it. Um, if you look at the ways that a lot of, um, um, if you think about the ways that. Um, so much of the activism of women like Rosa Parks, women who were early in the, in the civil rights movement, um, were galvanized. It was around the issue of sexual violence. It was about trying to um, get white men held accountable in the in the courts for um, um, 
you know, uh, for sexual violence against black women. And it was considered a victory when white men were actually prosecuted for uh, raping black women. And this didn't happen in the South until the 50s into the 1970s. And so there is a context for black women's organizing around this issue, but it hasn't been given the kind of frame and attention when we think about feminist victories, uh, broadly defined. I just wanted to ask you, you know, well, it, it's been so discombobulating to see so much attention being paid to systemic racism and particularly the issue of police violence over the last few years, but then also experiencing that at the same time that the Trump phenomenon has been at the forefront of the you know national attention as well, and especially seeing so many Americans apparently comfortable with Donald Trump rather than viewing every single day that he's in the White House as a kind of moral and national emergency. But I just wondered when you look at this whole picture and, and you think about tomorrow and the next day and next year, do, do you feel hope or despair? Um, I feel um, confused. I don't know which impulse is going to win out. Um, but I do know that over the past four years, people have been incredibly creative. They've been funny. They've been smart. They've been incisive. They've tried one thing and it didn't work, so they tried something else. And so I don't know what I think about the future. Like, you know, in light of recent events, I take it day by day. But I do think that um, I'm always kind of moved and overwhelmed by human potential, that what people think about and what people are willing to do and what people participate in is always kind of amazing. So I don't know if I believe that, you know, the future is going to be X or Y, but I do know that people will continue um, to be overwhelmingly um, smart and ethical and creative in their attempts. And I think that's kind of the best that we've got right now. Okay, that's a great note to end on. So Marsha Chatwin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.